Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter Hilary Milnes, and joining us today from Hong Kong is Luke Grana, the founder of the fashion brand Grana. Thanks for joining us, Luke, via Skype. Thanks for having me on the show. Great. So obviously you are in Hong Kong because that is where Grana is based. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit of background about the brand? You guys have been around for about five years now. Is that right? Uh, And and just why you chose Hong Kong for the headquarters? Yeah, absolutely. So so Grana.com, we're we're a a fashion brand. We're we're based out of Hong Kong. Uh, We're now shipping to 70 markets. Uh, We've... uh, We've been around for about three years, so we just had our three-year birthday party. Um, and uh, I, I first thought of the idea for Grana when I was back back in Sydney. Um, I was just looking at different industries and, and just saw a, a big growth um, in the fashion industry moving from, from offline to online. Um, and then actually I was, I was on a, a trip uh, to Peru um, and I was just looking looking at different product categories and, and learnt about Privian Pima Cotton. Uh, which is you know beautiful soft silky silky cotton from from Peru, um, and, and and got really excited by by the fabric, and then brought some samples back back to Sydney in Australia, and and showed some family and friends, and everyone got very excited about about the cotton, but also the story about Peruvian Pima. Uh, so it was at that point when I uh, said you know I wanted to get into the into the fashion game, and uh, and I was just doing a lot of research. This is back in 2013, mm-hmm. and. Uh, some work experience at, at Zara and also at French Connection, just learning about styles and price points and, and where a, a brand could fit in. Uh, and that's where I also learned that I think there's a big trend right now of back to basics and back to good quality basics. And then, you know, matching matching the, the trend back to basics with really beautiful fabric origin stories. So I started researching different other fabrics around. So looked at uh, Japanese denim, uh, Chinese silk, Mongolian cashmere, Italian merino wool, and learned that there's a lot of beautiful stories out there. Um, so it was at that point where I wanted to set up a global distribution center uh, and really take advantage of, of direct direct shipping. Uh, I looked at the US, I looked at Singapore, but then landed on Hong Kong and, and realized that uh, Hong Kong um, was is a free tax port, so we can import and export our, our goods uh, with, without paying tax in Hong Kong. Uh, it's a world sourcing city, so a lot of the, the key fabric mills and garment makers are here based in Hong Kong. Uh, and, and then the third and the main reason uh, is that Hong Kong is uh, the world's uh, largest air cargo hub. So it's got the most amount of planes going from Hong Kong around the world. So I actually started uh, speaking to DHL when I was back back in Sydney and realized that the rates that they could uh, offer offer Grana were, um, were really, really low compared to just, you know, shipping from Sydney to, to Melbourne or even Sydney to, to Global. Um, so actually, I got, a, I got a, a plane over to Hong Kong. It was just a, a one-way ticket. Uh, I had 200,000 uh, US of, of savings mm-hmm. and uh, basically set up the, the small warehouse and, and we got uh, 2,000 uh, T-shirts in um, and we had a, a very, very simple website, grana.com, and uh, we, we did a beta, beta launch in 2014, and uh, within three weeks, we'd actually sold out of the, the 2,000 T-shirts and really proved that we could use Hong Kong as a hub to do global shipping. 
That's interesting. Um, and I know you mentioned you had a background at Zara. What did you What did you do there? And, and um, can you just tell us a little bit more about your fashion background? It seems like around the you know the early 2010s, people were kind of looking at the fashion industry and saying, okay, you, it's, it's relatively easier now to start up a brand online, um, with a little bit of funding or a little bit of savings. How did you, uh, look at your experience and say, okay, I can actually pull this off. Yeah, it was, it's a good question. I mean, I spent most of 2013 just researching. So I was, I was visiting Peru, I was getting samples made, uh, and also had some work experience at Zara and, and French Connection, and I was actually actually just on the store, in the store selling, uh, talking to customers, uh, you know, learning about fabrics and price points, and really just trying to understand the industry. And I think that's also where I realised that um, a lot of the, the fashion stores, um, the traditional ones, they have they've broken up their inventory in so many different locations, and and, and that was a reasoning that I, I said. Wouldn't it be better just to have one centralized inventory location so you you can have a, a, a bigger range, you can have more styles, but you don't have to you know keep buying so many products to split it up into so many different uh, in, in the mini warehouses. Mm-hmm. Um, and were you able to launch globally then when you first started, or or how did you sort of chart out the the different regions that you uh, targeted and were able to ship to? Yeah, so when we first launched, we, we, we did ship um, to eight markets um, within the three weeks. So we, we, you know, we had friends and family just supporting the launch and we, we had a, a database of uh, 2,000 people that had signed up, you know, on the waiting list. Um, but I think, you know, originally, you know, a lot of the, the, a lot of the, the community w- was from Australia um, and then uh, obviously in Hong Kong, our local market. But then we, we realized two key markets were, were growing quite organically, so Singapore uh, and also the U.S., um, uh, shipping from Hong Kong to the U.S., so it was actually, uh, you know, tax-free. Uh, the shipping rate was 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 two days, and it was very uh, attractive um, shipping cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you are you able to offer um, two-day shipping then with this model? It's a pretty, uh, you know, if you can take anything from Amazon, you're going to want to. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, DHL has you know overnight planes and and FedEx as well have overnight plane. Planes right through to uh, anywhere in, in the U.S. So we can do you know one to two day shipping to the U.S. Uh, we we offer express shipping uh, which you, which we we you pay for and then free shipping which is standard shipping which is uh, five to seven day shipping. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's so some regions, but um, do, so as you're growing the brand and and reaching out to customers and and raising awareness, um, how much do you think that customers care about where they're products are made as well as source. I know you have um, materials from a few different, a few different places. How do you work this? It's a very, so it's a very global brand. How do you work that into the story that you're, that you're selling to customers? Yeah. So we, we always sell our products through the fabric origin stories. And I think it was, it was in the early days where um, a lot of, uh, a lot of our, our customers were saying that they wanted, you know, more story and more purpose with the products that we, we were selling. So, you know, we, we realized early on that we weren't selling a T-shirt. We were selling a Peruvian Pima T-shirt. Um, and, you know, when we launched our cashmere, we really, you know, we were launching Mongolian cashmere. And, and you know, we've launched 10 fabrics now. And I think, you know, w- w- with you know, online and then also the use of offline, you know, we, we can tell these stories of, of um, you know, the, the beautiful places where, where we go and, and source the, the, the fabric from, the culture, also the people making the fabric. 
Um, so I think that was that was an angle that we went with, and uh, I think it was, was received really well. Um, I think this also goes back to, to millennials, which is our, our, our main market, that they want products with a purpose. They want to understand where it's made. They want to understand the details of the fabric, the weights, the composition of the fabrics. Um, so I think this is part of part of Grana, which is you know we we have an internal mantra at, at work, which is you know quality for all and making quality accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the fabric origins is only one part of that, but but we really try and communicate that story. Right. Actually, last year, uh, actually last year we um. We did a, a campaign called Show Me Where, and, and we sent uh, six Instagrammers uh, to our key fabric mills, and, and we we took photos and made videos and, and showed where the fabrics came from and the people making it, and and that was a really a really good way for us to, to showcase our, our, our fabrics. Oh, interesting. So you are so you work with influencers. Uh, what's that experience been like? Yeah, great. I mean, we, we've been really lucky actually. We, we've you know, when we first started, we we got some great uh, you know influencers, you know, talking about the brand, and and I think you know, one of the key ways that that we've got grown, and we, you know, we're still growing, but you know, working with influencers um, and uh, and and getting them to 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 talk about the quality, and 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 they really post about you know Peruvian Pima and Mongolian cashmere as well, and it really help build build the brand. But I think that that also matched with um, with offline. You know, we we, we were born online. Um, but you know, as a brand, we've, we've always loved pop-ups. We've loved interacting with customers, and we've done about 15 pop-ups now over the past couple of years. And we've done them in in Sydney, and Singapore, and Hong Kong, and and the US. And and what what we realised worked really well is having um, an offline presence. So doing an event, doing a pop-up, doing postering, uh, doing mail-outs, but then adding the uh, the influencers and the the digital marketing referral. In, in a small local area, we, we see that working really well. So the uh, was the in-store experience always part of the plan or, or when you were starting an online fashion brand, it was very much like, oh, we can do this all online. And then, you know, as you realized you needed to grow and, and build customer awareness, it, it, that was kind of walked back. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we were born online and we thought that we can scale purely online, but um we we actually in Hong Kong we this is uh, October 2014 when, when we launched the brand we we had a three day pop up uh, in Central in Hong Kong and the first night we had we had a, a launch event and we had a lot of people come and then those uh, three days after uh, the, you know the the, the awareness was, was great and it felt like just everyone in Hong Kong knew about the brand uh, and, and we realized very quickly that you know, even though they were an online brand you know using offline. To introduce the brand and, and, and show the, the brand experience and, and allow customers to feel and, and touch the fabrics was, was a great way to grow. Mm-hmm. And what we've been trying to do is keep it really lean. So we've done you know quite a few pop-ups, but you know that they're, they're we, we don't fit them out. We we keep them as lean as possible. We've got teams that that can move around because um, we obviously you know we've, we've got to control the costs and we, you know we've got a small marketing budget, so we've got to try and make the most amount of impact. Mm-hmm. And do you think was that like a almost an awakening, like a rude awakening for you guys as you realized, like, okay, this can't just happen online? Like, how do you? I feel like we hear so much about, um, you know, this online to offline story after it was all offline to online, and but when you realize that you need to have stores in this in this um, in this presence uh, in the you know in in real life, 
how do you fit, then fit that into your into your business plan? I know, and you guys do the um, the showroom model as well, in addition to pop ups, or you know, how do you decide what that online or offline presence should look like? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we're we're still figuring it out as as a brand. Um, you know, we, we, we know that we love short-term pop-ups in different cities uh, matched with a lot of online advertising. We, 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 we believe that does work. Um, and, you know, we, we have a full-time fitting room here in, in Hong Kong that, that's doing really well. Um, but I think, you know, our, our growth is still majority online. Um, even, even our marketing budgets, you know, uh, about 15% is offline and 85% purely online. Um, so I, I think the importance of online is 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 really high, but you know we're very much scaling online. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you guys are are compared to Everlane pretty often. Uh, this idea that you can get affordable basics that are still really high quality, um, cutting out the middleman. How do you stand out? How do you differentiate um, as a as a direct to consumer apparel brand? Because in addition to Everlane, we're we're looking at a whole sea of them right now. Yeah, it's a good good question. I mean, I think you know Everlane is, is doing amazing. They're they're growing quickly. They're, they're a bit older than Grana. Um, I feel like Grana's you know targeting a bit more of a younger segment. We've got uh, more colors, more more of a colorful, fun brand. Uh, but you know Everlane are doing well, and, and there's a lot of other direct to consumer brands, uh, especially in the US, that, that are doing really well. But you know we, we like to think that we've carved out you know our, our space out here in in, in Asia. Um, but uh, but I think you know as a summary I think Grana is more of a, a fun younger brand we've got more colors uh, but we're still very much paying in, in affordable basics uh, territory right and, and and so going off of the fact that you're made in China do you have to especially as you are looking to expand in the US um, sort of go against this stereotype that that means uh, cheaply made or or you know using um, cheap labor how do you sort of fight back against that stereotype I know that there are a few brands all working to do this right now, but uh, what's what's your approach? Well, we're we're based in Hong Kong, so we have our warehouse in Hong Kong and, and team here in Hong Kong. Um, but you know, we, we, we source our fabrics from all around the world, um, and you know, some of them we may make in, for example, Peru, where all the Peruvian Pima is made. But then other fabrics like our Irish linen or Japanese denim, uh, we source the fabric from the origin, but then we send it to our garment maker uh, here in, in China. And then it's manufactured and sent across the border to, to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think like there is you know a, a stigma which is I think quite an old one about made in China. But you know the garment makers that we're working with are you know really high quality and, and you know we you know we are paying quite high high prices for for our garments because um, of the the higher labor costs in, in China, but also the, the higher skill sets uh, that 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 they've, they've, they've honed their craft o- o- over these years. Right, and and how did you find those? Uh, garment makers, uh, it, it seems like a big, a really important part of, of building a brand in China and Hong Kong is is just the finding the right relationships uh, and and the supply chain itself is getting a lot of attention. You mentioned uh, you know going inside the factories, sort of taking the the influencers there, which is which is definitely goes to show just it, it's it's different than it used to be. That used to you know, be a very shadowy process. Um, so so how did you build relationships with the company or the people that you want to work with over there? And um, and and how are you making sure that the supply chain is is laid out in a way that it's scalable at this, but at the same time, it's not. It's something that you'll be proud to show off. 
Yeah, so, so when I was first in Australia, I started looking at, um, at, 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 at sourcing different products like jeans and shirting and sweaters. And, um, you know, what I realized is that there's agents in Australia and then agents, you know, in other parts of the world and there's middlemen and, and to actually get to the garment maker or even the fabric mill it just felt really quite far. Um, so what we did, we did something quite different. We, we just said, hey, let's just go directly with the fabric mills. Let, let's find the best fabric that, that we can. Uh, and build the relationship with the fabric mill first. So, so that happened uh, definitely in Peru to start, but then same for the Japanese denim and the Chinese silk, Irish linen. Um, so we would we, we would we would travel and, and, and find the fabric, um, and then once we we found the right fabric mill, we'd really you know get them on board with the Grana plan and say so, you know really make them a partner to show them that you know this is the plan. We, we, we want to focus on quality. We want to give this quality at, at a great price point. So we'd really get them on board as our partner, and then what would happen is they would introduce us to you know one of their their top garment makers that they've already had an existing relationship. So then we've got a relationship with the fabric mill and the garment maker, and it's been you know through through the fabric mill. So obviously they're they're making quality uh, a relationship, quality contact, um, and that that's I think how we started with all our fabric mills and. Um, you know, we're still working with uh, the same fabric mills for, for a lot of our products over the past three years. So they've been able to witness um, our, our growth. And, you know, for example, the T-shirts, I remember our first order, we ordered about uh, 2,000 T-shirts. Uh, and now we're ordering about 2,000 T-shirts, uh, sorry, 10,000 T-shirts uh, every couple of months. And, and that volume has really, you know, they've grown with us, with us the whole way through. Um, and then I think your second question was about how do we keep that relationship. I think it's just you know, continuous contact, um, continually uh, you know, working on the quality, making sure that the standards are there. Uh, and then for all our fabric mills, the, the, the product team, including myself sometimes, will always go and, and, and visit the fabric mill and, and see the team and, and really nurture the, the relationship. Right, and I'm sure being there in, in Hong Kong helps uh, that relationship. It, it does, yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of the fabric mills do have have a head office in, in Hong Kong, um, and I think yeah, for, for product design and, and merchandising and development, being in, in Hong Kong is great. Rather than sending a lot of emails, we can just go um, go go to the office here, or even go to Shenzhen and, and other other parts of China, and just just have a full day session and just map it out. And I think it just allows for much faster development. Uh, yeah, and that's super important right now, and and it also seems like. Uh you know, we're looking at uh, brand fashion brands more so on the luxury side, but even you know, running the gamut of, of luxury fashion brands, they're all looking at, at China and at Hong Kong as a market where they can really grow the customer and establish um, a, a relationship with the customer, especially online where they kind of had ignored it before. Uh, so, for a direct to consumer brand, how how does that uh, positioning? play with with the Chinese uh, customer with the customer in Hong Kong um, do you find your like who are your competitors there is it is it the the global luxury fashion brands um, what's the what's the marketplace like for where where you're actually based yeah um, I mean it's interesting you know we, we first thought of the idea and then moved over to Hong Kong uh, to set up the, the company um, and uh, you know a lot of the team members that we have you know half are from Hong Kong and the other half are expats and we have we have about about 18 nationalities within the office, so we really see ourselves as as a global team. Uh, we source globally from around the world, and then we ship globally. 
Um, but, you know, Hong Kong has really taken Griner in, and, and I, I believe we're very, very lucky uh, for that. And, um, you know, a lot of our sales and, and growth is coming from, from Hong Kong, which, which is great. Um, but, you know, there, there is a limit there, so that's why now we're, we're focusing on other markets. Um, but but in saying that, I, I I do believe that Hong Kong is still quite traditional. You know, there's a lot of lot of malls, a lot of bricks and mortar stores. So a lot of our competitors would be in in the the physical retail space. Um, but uh, but I think you know on, online and e-commerce is growing very quickly in, in Hong Kong. Um, so it's it's very much exciting times. And I see I know there's a lot of other e-commerce startups uh, you know happening now in in Hong Kong. Um, I think everyone, you know, is, is starting to realize that actually, from a logistics and sourcing point of view for e-commerce, it it makes a lot of sense. Right, you're you're gonna it's gonna be crowded pretty soon. They're gonna catch on to your plan. <laughs> uh, so, and you guys have raised um, some venture capital, including um, around from Alibaba, which is the the I think the biggest marketplace in in China. So, how did you go about deciding how much capital you wanted to take in? You know, we look a lot at, at how direct-to-consumer brands in the apparel space kind of shoot themselves in the foot by raising too much money, growing really fast at first, and then not they're not able to get over that initial hump. And so what what's your approach been like there? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely learning from, from other players out there. And I think um, in, in the early years, you know, Grana was growing at really amazing rates. And, and now what we're trying to do is just really think about um, creating more of a sustainable long-term uh, business. And very much, you know, the capital that we've that we've raised, we're we're treating it very carefully and, and making sure that we, we we can we can grow. And you know, a lot of the team now is just focused on your key KPIs, just to make sure that we hit hitting our targets and, and really optimizing for for profitability now. Um, so we we I mean, we we have we have capital, and, and we're not looking to raise you know huge amounts of, of money. We really just want to scale more organically, scale online. Um, really, we're looking at, at you know optimizing inventory, increasing inventory turn, getting a lot of our, our product, which is timeless product, on on replenishment. So we're really thinking, I think, much more of of, of, of making Grana a, a, a long-term sustainable business rather than just growing by raising a large amount of money. Um, but I think in, in in just talking about Alibaba, I mean they've been great for Grana. They they led our Series A round uh, last year, and we've been very lucky to work with them. We've been over to Hangzhou a few times, and um, you know, just just getting their advice and, and feedback. And you know, in July this year, we, we set up on on Tmall, and we've been uh, making sales and just you know, learning m- much more about about the market. Um, I think we're very much in in the learning stage of, of, of China and just seeing how the brand is perceived. Um, and I think once we can come up with a really strong plan, we, we, we do want to go after China, but uh, still very much learning. And I think we, we, we're realizing that it's just so much different to, to the Western world and, and how they see brands. But um, it, it's uh, interesting times. And I think we're, we're looking forward to, to next year and the year after to really you know, grow the brand in China. Right. And how... Uh do you look at how else do you look at other um, players in the direct to consumer space who have kind of come before Grana and say, okay, we want to make sure we avoid this mistake, maybe do this. Uh, you know, coming having a, a brand like that founded in in twenty fourteen, that's like, you know, kind of a, a later phase D two C apparel brand. So, so what have you learned? Well, I mean, I think you know there was 
probably more capital available, um, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe a few years ago, to to direct to consumer e-commerce brands. I'm not saying that the capital is not there now, but I think that um, it's you know for venture capital firms, I think everyone's talking about sustainability. They're talking about you know, getting to profitability, you know, first, and and then raising around you know a larger round later. Where I think maybe a few of the earlier brands, you know, raised raised a lot of capital, and, and obviously they had that amazing amount of capital which allowed them to grow very quickly and acquire new customers. But I think, you know, where where we really believe, you know, Grana is is going to be in the long term, and it's going to be about just you know you know more organically growing growing our customer ba- customer base. Um, our retention rates are very high now, and um, you know as long as our customers are happy now, you know, we we hope that you know Grana will still be around in in 20 years time, and we can just organically grow. Um, and I think that was also something you know la, la, uh, this year actually we were looking to do another a, a second fitting room, um, and we we're looking at numbers, the economics behind it, and you know it was a big investment, the rent was high, and it was a decision uh, with the team not not to do the fitting room and just really scale more online and we still will be doing offline pop-ups and, and creating awareness in the offline space but it was a decision to really just just you know reduce reduce our, our burn rates per month and, and really just grow grow a bit more organically right and the fitting room is the name for the the showroom that the, the store yeah. yes yep. the store uh so so yeah i think that's a great question for uh you know startup founders today is how do you grow your customers without spending a ton of money. I think uh, you mentioned Tmall is, is, did you say you're, you're on Tmall now or you're thinking about, about how to go about it? We're on Tmall. Yeah. We're, we're, we're shipping to China now and it's, it's, it's exciting, but we're, we're learning a lot as well. Yeah. How's that, how's that experience been? Because, uh, you know, I think after that you then think, okay, well, what about, what about Amazon? Would that be an equivalent? Uh, you know, how do you look at where, how to join these marketplaces and, and is that a way to grow your customers without, uh, spending a ton of capital? I think it definitely is. I think it's, it's a good way of customer acquisition to, to, um, you know, have more people learning about the brand, but I think for for us now we're we're growing at a steady rate. Uh, we don't need to think about third party channels. I think China is different, um, and and China is is a market that we want to organically grow into. So we are on Tmall, um, but you know for for all the other markets, we're we're not really thinking about third party channels right now. And I think you know it stems back that we want to control the message to the customer. We want to control the price point. We want to control the, the delivery experience that, that our, our community now, you know, uh, appreciates. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not saying we'll, we'll never do it, but, you know, we really want to, you know, control it as much as we can now, especially in, in our early years. Right. And, and I think that that question of, um, you know, you can look at these big platforms as as partners, but but you have to sacrifice a lot. So so as you as you look forward in terms of how you are looking to grow next, um, do you think that there's any sort of big lessons that you've learned so far that 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 are is the way we think about a direct to consumer apparel brand going going to change? I know we're already looking at okay, there's a an in store experience, a case to be made for that. In certain markets, there might be a um, a, a marketplace that makes sense to to partner with. Uh, going uh, looking ahead at like the next five years, do you think that these pillars that that make up um, a modern fashion brand are going to change? Uh, what do you think your your priorities are going forward, and, and how do those shape what else is going on in the industry? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we I think a realization at Grana was that you know product quality and price point to have a really strong product market fit. And I think at Grana we we, we have um, we have a, a system called Grana Labs, and we we test a lot of products and we order small quantities to test. So I think for us it's just making sure online that we can launch products that really have a strong product market fit and and, and that the market really wants it. Um, so I think in in that case it's it's about doing less amount of products and it's just doing more products that that we can really stand behind. Um, I think the second one uh, is definitely you know really having a clear brand identity and making sure that there's you know consistency on the website, on social, the photography, the tone. Um, so I think that's really important to uh, for you know direct to consumer brands. Um, and I think you know, the third thing that we're, we're learning, and I think this is going to be really important for us as, as we grow, is what we call like a hyper-local hyper strategy in, in our marketing, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, for, for us, you know, we're, we're a young brand and there's a lot of big competitors out there, a lot of big traditional brands, and we can't just advertise everywhere and we can't do marketing everywhere. So what we're doing is, is hyper-local marketing in, in, in a small city. Uh, where we match online and offline and we do events and postering and, and mail arts and, and then we match that with influencers. And I think that that's what we've seen work. Um, at, but when we try and market to, you know, one full country like, for example, England, you know, it, it, the, the message doesn't get through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think moving forward for us, it's more about the, the hyper-local marketing. Right. And I'm sure it's about cutting through the noise because at this point the, the market is getting crowded. Do you think that they were going to see like um – like a almost a shakeout of of direct to consumer apparel brands that can actually get started. You mentioned already that there's not as much VC funding to go around. Uh, any other implications that that you're noticing about just the fact that the market itself has matured? I think it, it's still in the process of maturing. I think that there's like a lot of um, startups, especially in the e-commerce space, and you know, including Grana, but a lot of startups that are specializing in, in one product. And I think that's that's a really good way to go. Um, but uh, I, I think you know it's it's still not mature yet. I think I think there's still going to be a lot of startups that, that come in. I think attracting funding is definitely going to be harder, and and you know companies need to be more creative in, in how they they create awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Facebook advertising and Instagram advertising now is is just too expensive. So you know, creativity in, in creating awareness. Um, but uh, but but I, but I do think that you know it's gonna it's gonna be a few years until it's fully mature. And, and the, the ones that, that remain, is, it's, it's really all down to the execution of, of really having that high-quality product, having you know, a strong marketing message and, and a market fit, and, and then actually being able to deliver the, the, the product in an in a efficient way and, and you know, right through managing costs and making sure that you're not running out of money. Right. That's all you got to do. It sounds simple. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well thanks so much Luke for joining us Uh, I will let you go I know it's I know we're we're getting to the end of the day in Hong Kong but uh, thanks I really enjoyed the chat yeah thanks for the time it was was good to chat with you great and and thank you for listening we'll be back next week with another episode and in the meantime be sure to follow us on iTunes Stitcher and Google Play and leave us any feedback you have 